Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word today from the Gospel of Mark, very important incident in the life of Jesus concerning a couple of His disciples. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Chutzpah um, is what they have. We want you to do, for, we want, we, yeah. <clears throat> See, I can't even imagine talking to Jesus like that. The words just don't come out right. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, the other disciples, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Father God, may You honor the reading of Your Word today with hearing, with understanding. Lord, with the work of Your Spirit to teach Each of us gathered here in this moment, whether in this room or whether online or even at a later moment, watching later. Lord, may your spirit work to teach us very deeply this truth so that it will change how we live and how we think, not only about you and about us, but about the world and about our mission and our place in this world as well. Lord, today in these moments of worship, we avail ourselves to you, the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray for each of us to listen as you speak to us. Lord, I pray for the preoccupations of the world to be pushed to the side. Lord, I pray for the stresses and the strains that are afflicting us just to be momentarily relieved of those troubles so that we can hear from you. And as we hear from you, our souls will be restored Our spirits will be revived. Our minds will be transformed. Lord, we will be drawn closer to you. Lord, as we look at the very powerful subject of just how your kingdom exercises authority in this world of rebellion, may we learn from your spirit this day. As always, Father God, I ask for my words particularly on this subject, not to get in the way of your word, but for your spirit to speak, for your truth to be heard and received, 
We pray all these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God. Amen. Would you please be seated? And a very special welcome back to those who are joining with us online today. We had a few technical issues last week, but we're back online today, and we are grateful that everything got worked out. Great job to our tech team who handled that with with great um, great speed and accuracy, getting everything fixed. Welcome back to the service today. Uh, remember, you are a part of the Oak Park family as well, so we'd love to have you participate in today's service by texting in comments, questions, prayer praises, or prayer requests to 805-481-7092. And if you happen to be watching for the first time or you've never texted in before and we have no idea who you are, we would love to have the chance to get to know you. So when you text in, please include a name. That would be fantastic. Well, polite people in our society are taught to never talk about religion and never talk about politics. You're in the wrong place. We are 0 for 2, or shall I say 2 for 2 today. Last week, we looked at this issue of, is Jesus political? And the fact that Jesus is the Messiah means that, yes, Jesus is political. You see, the Messiah is king. Not just a king, not just the king of the Jews, not just the king of those who want to believe in him and follow him, not just king of a spiritual, uh, of a spiritual perspective. Jesus, as the Messiah, is king. He is the king over the rulers of this earth. The scriptures reveal him as the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is the one who reigns supreme over all. Power in this world is merely an illusion as we ourselves try to attain power and control over our small words, worlds. It's an illusion. Just like was the words from Jurassic Park, we never had control. That's the, that's the, the, the illusion. The rulers who sit in the capitals and in the governor's mansions and in the White Houses and the presidential palaces of this earth, think they are in charge. They are not. And it's not the Illuminati who are in charge or other kinds of secret societies. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, the majority of kings of this earth and the lords of this earth do not recognize his authority. They usurp his authority by seeking to have that authority of themselves. And we wonder why the world is in such a mess. But Jesus is the king. And as the king, yes, he is political. Some of the opening things I'm going to say and some of the things in your notes are some of the most important things that I've, 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 I've written and said at least recently. So let's, let's capture this real quickly here. Jesus, in his victory over death by the resurrection set in motion the final phase of God's redemptive plan to reunite individuals into his family as his children and then to unite them together as a new kingdom among the kingdoms of the earth. That's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. It was the final assault It was the final incursion into enemy territory of the kingdom of heaven into the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus established a beachhead with his 12 disciples who then turned into more than 120 and then it was over 500 and then it was over 3,000 and then it was over 8,000 and it has expanded into the billion plus mark today. 
That began at the resurrection. And as Jesus conquered death, that set him up as the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he has defeated humanity's greatest enemy. But this new kingdom that Jesus established will infiltrate, increase, and influence toward an ultimate end. The ultimate end of bringing everything under the feet of Jesus. That's how the scripture describes it. And under the feet of Jesus means that everything will be placed under his authority. And yes, that is conquest imagery. There's a very important passage in the book of 1 Corinthians from chapter 15. Chapter 15 is actually one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. It details the resurrection and what exactly the resurrection truly means. But ensconced in this passage is this little tidbit this little insight into what God's mission and ultimate aim is for his work in this world. The words will be on the screen. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, or when he comes again, those who belong to him. Starting at verse 24, this is 24, 25, and 26 is the, the kernel of this. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything, it doesn't it's put under him. It's clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Here's what this is saying. God's redemptive plan for humanity was to restore individuals to relationship through faith. Those restored individuals would then unite as a new family, as a community, as the church, as the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God would then begin to exert influence within the kingdoms of this world. And eventually, as the kingdom of God attains a certain level of increase and influence and transformation in this world, eventually, when that reaches its final point, the kingdom itself that has subjected all to Jesus, Jesus will then hand over everything to God the Father. That's the plan we are participating in. We are not saved just to get out of hell. We are not saved just to get a few life enhancement tips from following Jesus. This is a plan of cosmic significance. Every single person is a warrior in God's kingdom. Just remember, some warriors are cooks and tech sergeants and maintenance men. Not all are frontline soldiers. <laughs> but that's the plan. 
is that as Jesus in the resurrection has, has intruded upon the ruler of this world, the kingdom is now established and the kingdom must increase, bringing dominion and authority of God in, to bear in this world. This is the current trajectory of human history. And we may look around and say, oh my gosh, things have never been worse. Everything is going to hell in a handbasket is the old saying. Things are unraveling at an unprecedented clip. To which I say yes and no. In one way, yeah, life is pretty messed up. But in another way, have you ever read history? If you read history, you will understand and get a little bit of a perspective. Things have been much worse in the past. Way worse on a much larger scale in the past. In actuality, taken in total and in sum, life on this planet has never been better. We are producing more food, more wealth, more ways to experience leisure than it ever. We're actually experiencing more worldwide peace than at any time in human history, aside from just a very few small snippets and windows of history. Yes, we still have wars and rumors of wars. We still have people who are inexplainably going without food and without, and that's an absolute abomination and travesty. We'll address that at a later point. But overall, the kingdom of God has influenced this earth so greatly that what is good happening in this world can be directly traced and rooted to the followers of Jesus, following Jesus and doing the things Jesus wants them to do on a larger scale influencing culture. Science, technology, hospitals, medicine, human rights, care, concern, alleviation of the poor, all of these things, as we experience them in society, are directly the result of Jesus being here and the people of Jesus doing what Jesus calls them to do. There is no other source. There is no other explanation. It is not human evolution. We do not come up with it on our own. It is strictly, solely Jesus. Everything possibly good happening in this world, in societies everywhere, is ultimately attributed to the influence of Jesus. That's his mark. That's the trajectory that humanity is on. Jesus, as the king, has commissioned every single believer to the same task. Make more disciples of Jesus. The mark of discipleship is not merely to believe, but to learn how to live out Jesus' teachings so that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. The dominion that Jesus is exercising, the dominion is through discipleship. It is the conquering of the individual human heart, the transformation of the individual life. That's where the change truly happens. And then it is the collective effect of these disciples coming together in communities, small and large, weak and strong, influential and insignificant, 
Is these individuals who come together, bond together through the blood of Jesus to do the work of Jesus in the world, that's where true change and influence happens. That's how societies are transformed. That's how the dominion of Jesus expands. And as we expand the dominion of Jesus, we are participating in that trajectory of Jesus being eventually to hand over all that is under his authority as after every realm of Satan has been, has been reduced It's handed over to God the Father. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It is from another place. That's how he worded it. So it follows that life in this new kingdom requires a different worldview, requires different ethics than the normal ethics of the world. We have different priorities, different values, and we conduct ourselves in a different and distinct manner than the normal way of life in the kingdoms of this world. The Apostle Paul gives us a very key perspective when he says our citizenship is in heaven. Citizenship is where we garner our identity from, right? It's how we label ourselves. Our citizenship is how we know how to conduct ourselves and how to view ourselves in the world. It is our citizenship that where we relish our rights and our privileges. And if our ultimate citizenship is first from heaven, that's where all these things come. And secondly, as citizens of heaven, we are then secondarily citizens of the different kingdoms of this world, including even, yes, the United States. Since Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, it comes from a different place. The influence of Jesus' kingdom in this world is spiritual. And that's one of the biggest mistakes we make is the problems within the kingdoms of this world are not political. They are not cultural. They are not economic. They're not merely academic. The problems in this world have at their root spiritual sources spiritually misplaced priorities, spiritually wrong ideas and motivations. These things result from the worshiping of idols and false gods. The Bible says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. There's one caveat on that. The whole world is under the control of the evil one for now, not for eternity. And the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. If the root problems of all of our cultures and all of our societies are spiritual, therefore the solution must be spiritual first. The Bible says Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. And if all of our problems are spiritual, not physical, they are spiritual, not political, they are spiritual, not cultural, spiritual, not economic, spiritual, not academic, this is an essentially key point. And even if you perhaps don't remember anything else from today, please remember this. It is imperative to remember that no other image bearer is our enemy. And who are the image bearers? Every single human being. Even those who are fully sided with the ruler of this world, 
Even those who are fully enmeshed in the worshiping of idols and false gods and so living out an ideology and a theology and a a political stance and position and and cultural things that are at the, the antithesis of the kingdom of God. No other person is ever the enemy. The Apostle Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness by which Jesus rescues us from through the crucifixion and the resurrection, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those who are opposed to the reign of Jesus are not the enemy. They are prisoners of war. They are captives held by the enemy. They are the collateral damage of a spiritual war far beyond this realm. How does that transform our political discussions, our cultural disagreements, and I'm the first to say, culture's getting weird. Uh, culture's getting kind of crazy. Yeah. You know, things that are extremely basic and extremely rational are no longer extremely basic and extremely rational. So we've got some big culture war type of stuff going on. But at the root cause are spiritual issues. So how does the kingdom work within the kingdoms of this world? As citizens of the kingdom among the kingdoms, followers of Jesus are to wage war with the prevailing culture. But it's different. The Apostle Paul says very clearly, 2 Corinthians 10, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The way the world seeks to exercise power, the way the world seeks to gain influence, the way the world seeks to take control is not the way the kingdom of God is to do it. It's if our solutions are, po- are spiritual, not political, therefore the aim must never be to change the politics. Politics can aid in some aspects, but it's never the ultimate goal. External control leads to internal rebellion. That's why Jesus came to conquer the human heart. It is the most difficult, it is the most indefeatable enemy in the world outside of Christ. That's why the hearts and minds have to come first. We do not wage war as the world does, but instead we take captive every thought. We demolish pretensions. There is an intellectual aspect to the Christian faith. Christianity intellectually not only stands true, but is not only logically consistent, but holds the test of time. But Christianity is not merely academic or intellectual either. It needs to be street level. It needs to be gut level. 
It needs to be house to house, street to street, town to town of changed lives. That's how we wage war. We do it differently. Jesus clearly charged his followers to live differently and distinctively. Disciples are to be salt and light. Power through humility, just like Jesus. In our text today, the disciples were asking, when you come in your glory, when you establish your kingdom, we want to be your viceroys. We want to be in power sitting alongside of you. Because James and John thought they were that special. Remember, they were the sons of thunder. They had a little bit of a temper issue. They were a little bit power hungry and power seeking. So there's this. They're the ones who wanted to call down fire to destroy the village that disrespected Jesus. Hot-headed. But you know what? James was the first to die for Jesus, and John was the last apostle to live. And then later in his life, John, the son of thunder, became the apostle of love. Over and over in his writings, brothers and sisters, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever does not love his brother or sister does not love God. That's the transformation of those two because of this encounter. Jesus said, if you, want to, if you want to go through what I'm going through, and you will, you, will, you will, at least in some regard. But if you want to be great, if you want to be great, serve. If you want to have influence, then simply lower yourself. If you want to become first, be last. Be the slave of all. See, it doesn't register in this world, but it registers for eternity. And the scorecard that really matters is, is the one there, not here. It's what God thinks of us. It's what God notices. It's what God wants for us. Not what society thinks or people think or anything else. It's how we measure up there that matters, not how we measure up here. But when we measure up there, we will influence and change things down here. Power through humility. Sacrifice over the self. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross daily. You must die to self. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that doesn't mean, first and foremost, to go out and get yourself killed for being a Christian. That's happened millions of times throughout history and it will happen millions more. It's actually happening even today as we speak. Brothers and sisters in Christ are being executed simply for believing in Jesus. That may come for us in this country. But first and foremost, it is die to self. Die to your desires. Die to your self-will. Submit your will to me. That's what Jesus says. By conquering the self, we conquer the culture and the culture that's within. The four pillars of Jesus' commands to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as I have loved you and love even your enemies. If we build our lives on those four pillars, not only will the gates of hell not prevail against us, but the kingdom of God will stand strong and grow and increase in this world. Other things like speaking the truth in love so that we can demolish the arguments of the adversary and the ruler of this world. There's so many more. 
This is where we get political. So if the live stream just happens to have some problems and gives out right now, that's quite okay. You guys on that? We're still broadcasting? Yeah, the red light's on, bummer. All right. So we're going to get political. How did the earliest followers of Jesus, those very first disciples in the first few years, decades, in the first couple of centuries, how did they implement Jesus' commission to make disciples and to be disciples in the world? Well, the church exploded in growth exponentially in the first few centuries. These were some things that the disciple, those early disciples, not just the 12, but all disciples of Jesus did in those first few decades. And their ministry was so powerful that the scriptures say they turned the world upside down. And that's the whole point because the ethics of the kingdom of God are inverted from the ethics of common cultures. The earliest Christians did this. They embodied radical racial inclusivity. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus the saddest legacy, the greatest disobedience in the history of the church, of those people belonging to Jesus, is when they have allowed racial division to impact and to impede the advancement of the kingdom. It is absolutely untenable for any follower of Jesus to be a racist. There can be no superiority, there can be no inferiority. Every race, every, well, first off, there's only one human race. Yes, that's the technicality. There are different ethnicities, ethnicities of one race. Because we are one race, we are united. The blood of Jesus pays for the sins of the white, the black, the brown, the yellow. And if there's some weird parts of history where people have turned blue, like in Appalachia and stuff, Jesus died for them too. And every other color. It is the blood of Jesus that unites us, not the blood within us that divides us. Therefore, racism has no place in the heart or the mind of the follower of Jesus. And we have got to not wage war as the world does, but to wage war according to the Scriptures and love one another because of the Spirit inside, not the color of the skin outside. That's how the early church grew and actually exploded in growth. All of the racial divisions were overcome in Christ. Second of all, they were overwhelmingly generous with tangible care and compassion to the poor and the marginalized. The generosity of Christians was so pronounced and so well known that even the Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate whined and complained in writing, we have it to this day, it's glorious. He was complaining that his pagan priests, the Roman cultural religions, were being embarrassed by the Christians because Roman religion did not care for the poor and the outcast, but the Christians did. 
Julian wrote, they support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see our people lack aid from us. He then, as emperor, commanded his pagan priests to emulate the compassion of the Christians and to get the, the Roman practitioners of their, of their gods and their worship to emulate the Christians. And you know what? They failed. They couldn't do it. There is no basis in pagan religions for actually treating people as children of God because they don't view individuals, they don't view people as, well, people in some sense, and they also don't view them as made in the image of God. There is no motivating underlying theology within that religion to care for people, especially when you have some of the great philosophers of Greco and Roman society saying some people are simply born to be tools. Now, yes, I'm sure all of us have certain tools in our family and in our acquaintances as a metaphor for whatever. But when you subjugate an entire class of people as being subhuman, that's where abuse and atrocities and inhumanity comes. The Christians fought against that vociferously, giving dignity to all people. That brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James wrote this, suppose a it's not the same James as James and John, but another James. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And those early Christians had living faith in taking care of those in need. Even today, the majority of charity and good works and care and compassion in this world is done through agencies that are either still explicitly Christian or agencies that started as Christian and then kind of drifted from their moorings in that. But it is all rooted in the work of Jesus in this world. That's where it comes from. The earliest Christians, and we need to emulate that as well. Thirdly, the earliest Christians were ardently and active pro-life. Yes, pro-life. One of the hallmarks of many of the ancient pagan religions, and perhaps takes a different form today in the, religion, the modern religion of some, was the practice of child sacrifice. To our minds, it is absolutely horrific and it is disgusting, and it is repulsing, the thought of sacrificing children on an altar to a God as an act of worship. But sometimes today we sacrifice children on the altar, altar of self as the false God. The earliest Christians were so actively pro-life because they understood that every human conceived and created is in the image of God. God alone is the arbiter of life and death. In the Old Testament, from which they took their marching orders on this point, the law in Deuteronomy says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable, abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. That's an abomination. Roman law, Roman legal law 
said that a father was such the master of his house that he literally had the authority to decide which children lived and which children died. A father could snuff out the life of a daughter because he wanted a son. A father could snuff out the life of a son because he was born perhaps imperfect, was maybe a little bit weakly or premature or sick. And there was no, there was no CPS to call. There was no legal inquiry that was done. The father, as the potter familias, had absolute authority over the house to decide who lived and died. There was no legal repercussions. That was Roman law. Many families, some because of economics where they could not afford, but mostly it was because of either um, infirmity or sickness or weakness, things like that. Once again, this was lo- le- legally, this was legal in the Roman Empire, is that babies could be taken to the dump and left there, placed on the trash heaps to die of something called exposure, neglect, and the elements. The earliest Christians understood this for the abomination that it is and the horrific, the horrific practice that it is, and those Christians would go every day to the dump to look for babies to rescue them. They would then take them into their homes and they would nurture them and bring them to health and they would raise them as their own. And sometimes orphanages were formed and things like that for for too many. And it was not just in the Roman Empire, but because so many pagan religions sacrificed children or disregarded children or dismissed children, even in the other cultures that the church increased in, this practice of of setting aside babies and, and, and abandoning them, the churches, the Christians who came and rescued them. In fact, it was done on such a large scale that it was uh, over the course of the decades, tens of thousands of babies were rescued in cultures all over that part of the world. And here's a pretty striking thing to think about. Because of the sheer scope of those babies who were rescued and they were given life and they were allowed to grow into adulthood and marry and bear children and bear descendants, It is a very real possibility that some of us sitting here today, some of us listening online today, are the descendants of those children who were rescued from the trash heap. We don't know know our lineages that far back, do we? Isn't that amazing to think about? It was because early Christians said, you know, time to go to the dump today, see if I can find a child. That's what the earliest Christians did did and were ardently pro-life because every child, every person is made in the image of God. And lastly, the earliest Christians revolutionized marriage through sexual exclusivity and fidelity. We think that finding the finding, you know, your soulmate and finding the person you love and the person you're meant to be with, Mr. Right, Mrs. Right, whatever it is, We think that romantic love, we think that monogamous marriage is just the way it's always been done throughout history. No. Monogamy is pretty much the exclusive realm of the Jewish religion and the Christian religion. And then some others now that have developed off of that. The ancients were very free in their sexuality outside of marriage as well. But it is Christianity that absolutely transformed the idea and the concept, the understanding of marriage. That is, And that's why it is so under assault today. 
because it is the hallmark of one of the key things of Christianity. That's why sexuality and specifically marriage as God designed it, one male with one female, is under such volatile attack today. Jesus himself said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, which means move out of the basement, have a job and take care of your family. It's, 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 that's the more expanded version of the Greek. Leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, one life. One life going through this life. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever, therefore, God has joined together, let not man or people separate. Those were how the earliest Christians exercised their discipleship. And their discipleship increased the dominion of the kingdom. And we've seen their results today. Most of the values we cherish in terms of equal rights and human rights and child rights and women's rights, workers' rights, humility, compassion, humbleness, care for the outcast, it all comes from the kingdom of God. So that's what we're about. So what about us today? Well, first off, be a disciple and help make disciples. If you are not yet a disciple of Jesus, which means to place your faith in Christ, confess your, Christ, your faith in Christ before others, it means to repent from self-driven perspective of life to a Christ-driven perspective of life. It means to, to unite yourself with Jesus through baptism and then live as a disciple. Let's get that done. Then make disciples. Influence others for Jesus. Help others learn and know and see what following Jesus means. Be an exemplary citizen of both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of America. I'm assuming almost all of us here are Americans. Do we have a Canadian that snuck in? Whew, that was close. When I was in Seattle, we had to deal with that a lot. They were just everywhere. You know, they were always escaping Canada to come to America for some reason. <clears throat> No more comment on that. But be exemplary citizens of the kingdom of God and of the United States. The apostle Peter writes, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We're also to pray for our elected leaders, especially the ones we don't like and disagree with. We are to pray for them sincerely, and honestly, and engage your influence as a citizen in voting and in being active. But remember, the weapons of the kingdom of God are not the weapons of the culture. We fight differently. Then lastly, the best advice is what God, the commandment God gave to the Israelites as they were carried off into exile in Babylon. This was a specific command of the Jewish people at that time, but the principles still apply to us today as we live as foreigners and aliens, that's the wording of Scripture, in these kingdoms. And if our citizenship is in heaven, then we are, yes, we are foreigners and aliens in these other kingdoms of the earth. So here's the, the exilic command given to the Jews as they lived in Babylon. 
Got the verse? There we go. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Which means God is the one who directed the exile. God is the one who placed them there for his purposes. Just like us. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it, if the city, if the kingdom of this earth in which you live prospers, you will prosper too. That is our task. That is our call. That is our commission as we work and as we wait for Jesus to exercise dominion and authority to reign in the rebellion so that ultimately all things at the end of time can be handed over to the authority of God and sin and evil and rebellion is done away with once and for all. This is our mission should we decide to accept it. Dun, 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 dun. I should have had the music queued up for that. That would have been great. <laughs>